I wonder if you've ever had that experience where you expected something to be one way, but it ended up being the opposite way. So where your perception of something and the reality of that thing ended up just being vastly different. So for my bachelor party, my brother thought it would be a wonderful idea to take all the groomsmen and me the groom skydiving the day before my wedding. And his only criteria, he said, and this was meant to comfort me, was that he sought the place that would take us the highest for the least amount of money. Well, friends, I hate heights, right? Ferris wheels alone terrify me. So I expected my stomach to explode when I leapt out of that plane. But you know what? It actually wasn't like that. I simply remember how loud it was. That's all I remember. I don't really remember losing my stomach at all. I just remember how loud it was to be falling through the air and the, that wind just whipping through my ears. The most exciting thing, honestly, was just trying to stick the landing. At any rate, it turned out my perception of this thing and the reality of the thing turned out to be quite different. Now, sometimes that difference, it honestly doesn't really matter. Like when Aaron and I attended the U2 Joshua Tree anniversary tour, right? It was a couple years ago. We went up to Arrowhead and we saw it. And I had grand expectations seeing U2 25 years before. And you know what? It was, it was okay. Just all right. Or maybe you go to a restaurant and you get a dish and you expect one thing. But in fact, you get something that tastes quite different. But you know what? Those things, that reality, those differences don't, it doesn't matter too much. But sometimes the difference between your expectation of something and the reality of that thing, sometimes that difference really does matter. So it could be a major, right? If you're in school, you always expected, you know, fill in the blank. Say pre-med would be like this, but it's actually been quite different. Or it could be a job. Or it could be marriage. For we all carry expectations, don't we, into marriage and yet we come to find whether or not it's five days or five weeks or five months or five years in that often our expectations and reality are quite far apart. But friends, what about God? What about God? For I trust the vast majority of us have assumptions and perceptions and expectations about God. But I wonder if you've ever reflected on those assumptions. Assumptions about what God's like, what he expects of us. Is God pleased with us? Is he pleased with me even right now? And have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what's the likelihood that I might be wrong in those assumptions? And what if I'm wrong? What if my perception of God and what I think he's like, and what he's actually like, are vastly different. What if I am in fact mistaken about God, and if so, friends, what would be the consequences? Well, friends, it's questions like this that bring us back this morning to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. Let me invite you to turn there now. We're going to be in chapters 5 and 6 this morning. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, we provide them, those red Bibles and the seatbacks before you. And you can find our passage beginning on page 257. Page 257. Now, if you're just joining us, 2 Samuel really documents the, the rise and then the fall and then the subsequent return of King David, who is Israel's most revered king and in chapter one we saw the first king of israel saul had died and in chapter two right the northern tribes installed saul's son his only surviving son ishbosheth on the throne and yet the judah in the south installs and anoints david to the southern throne and so there's a civil war that breaks out the house of saul and the house of david at war with one another and we saw last week how david's kingdom begins humbly Right, that little hamlet in Hebron, right, like a mustard seed. And yet, that kingdom advances steadily despite all opposition. And so we finish chapter 5 with Ishbosheth and his assassination by his own men, thereby clearing the path for David to finally become king. 
Now chapters 5 and 6 this morning, what do they do? They recount David's ascension to the throne. So that's where the, the scene's going to open. David ascends to the throne over all Israel. And then he captures Jerusalem. And then we read of two decisive victories over the Philistines. And then we close hearing about how the ark was brought to Jerusalem. And in many ways, we're, we're seeing here David at his best. Right, the apex of his career, really chapter 5 through chapter 10, that's sort of David at the heights before everything sort of goes off a cliff, so to speak, in chapter 11. And there's no doubt David is the obvious actor, right? The camera in these chapters is always panning and moving to follow David. And yet if we look closer, there is, friends, clearly another player at work in these chapters. And that's God himself, because everything that happens and everything behind these events what what stands behind it is the character and the purposes of God and we're going to see how these chapters at times challenge the most basic assumptions we have about him some of the most closely held beliefs we might walk in here with about God will be dashed upon the rocks of second Samuel 5 and 6 so what do these chapters teach us about God Four, I think, simple but essential truths, right? First is this. First is this. God is faithful. Once again, you just kind of have to listen tight for the whole outline. I'm not giving to you it in front, right? I'm going to let the narrative take us through, all right? The first thing I want us to see, and I pray that it will help us align our assumptions about God with the reality about him. First thing we see, number one, is that God is faithful. God is faithful. So look down with me, chapter 5, verse 1, and follow along as I read. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Which is just the Hebrew way of saying we're flesh and blood. That's what they're saying. And in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel, as in it was David who fought Israel's battles. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. All right, let's stop right there. So now every rival to the throne is dead. And we might expect, as we head into 2 Samuel 5, we might expect David just to march in and install himself as king, much like Abner did with Ishbosheth back in chapter 2. Because remember, David had been promised the kingdom. God had promised him that all the way back in 1 Samuel 16. And I think if we were in David's shoes, we might well be saying, you know what, God, it's, it's finally my turn. Or I've waited long enough. Now it's time to go get what's coming for me or what's due to me. But David doesn't do that, does he? Notice verse 1, all the tribes of Israel, what do we read? They came to David. Again, David still is not seeking the throne. He is not trying to manipulate or conspire in order to take it. He is resting in God to bring that about in his own timing. And friends, that's hard, isn't it? 
It's hard to wait upon God, to, to trust that God will do what's right when it's right. And why is David able to be wait? Why is he able to wait for God? Because he knows God is faithful. He knows God is faithful. And don't think for a moment that trust came easy to David. Right? The last years of David's life, I think we can fairly say, have been a kind of living hell. He's been betrayed by Saul. He's been banished from the kingdom. He had his wife taken from him. He lost Jonathan, his only confidant, really, and best friend. He is weathered and beaten. When David looks at himself in the mirror at this point in life, he hardly recognizes himself. If David was merely looking at his circumstances, there's no way to come to the conclusion that God is faithful. But David is able to look past those circumstances. He's able to look past them, and he's able to trust the God who stands behind all of them. And he trusts that God still, even now, has his hands on the wheel. And he knows that God's promises are certain, no matter how much resistance those promises meet. God will bring about, David believes, every promise according to his word. I wonder, my Christian friend, if there are promises that you are struggling to believe this morning. Are there promises you're struggling to believe? Maybe, just again, even right now. Do you see how David and his story ought to encourage you to what? To press on, to hold fast. Because 2 Peter 3 reminds us the Lord is not slow in keeping with his promises, as some understand slowness. But what do we read? He's patient. He is patient. And God calls us to be patient alongside him. Some of you need that reminder. God is faithful. I know your life may scream otherwise, but he is faithful. He is faithful. He will not forsake you. And he will not leave you. But he will stand by you and he will hold you fast. David knew that. He understood that. And notice, therefore, his first act as king. Notice what it is. It's to take Jerusalem. And we hear about the, the taunts and the trash talking, right, coming from the Jebusites. And honestly, we read the story, and I don't know about you, but I was wishing for more details. Uh, how exactly did David discover the water shaft that led into the city? Did David have an informant among the Jebusites, right? Did, did they have to put on swim trunks, right, a little Michael Phelps underwater? Right? I, I don't know. It would be interesting. Fun movie. But in verse 8, just for clarity, if you read it or even you heard me read, when, when David says they're to attack the lame and the blind in verse 8, who are hated by David's soul, just to be clear, David is not evidencing there a kind of prejudice against those with disabilities. So no need to like alert the Anti-Defamation League, okay? Just don't need to do that. All he's doing there is turning the Jebusites who had used that taunt against him, he's just turning it back on them. That's all he's doing. But it begs the question, right, why Jerusalem? Why capture this city and make it your new capital? Well, at one level, this right here is a brilliant political move. So if you know anything about the, the history of our own nation, at the founding of our nation, there was a big debate about where the capital would reside. And you had Hamilton, sort of the northern financier, who said, no, it needs to be in Philadelphia, where it had been. And you got Jefferson, the southern plantation owner, who's like, no, I don't trust those rich men north of Richmond. we gotta, we got to make it in the south. And what did they do? Well, they settled on D.C., sort of right in the middle. And it was, honestly, at the time, it was an utter swamp. It was a miserable place to live. Nobody liked D.C., and 250 years later, I'm not sure a lot's changed, but that's a different story. But just in the same way, Jerusalem lay on the border of, of Judah and the south. Remember, Judah is David's home tribe. And also, sort of right there on the border of all the 11 tribes, beginning with Benjamin to the north. So politically, this was a perfect place to establish a new capital. No swamp either, up there in the mountains. But militarily, right, it was a near impregnable city, right? That's what the Jebusites had taken wrong pride in. Nonetheless, he sees the walls. He recognizes the advantage of that location. So again, strategically, it makes sense. But friends, there's something else that I think is really easy for us to miss. 
You know, all the way back in Genesis 15, when God made his covenant with Abraham, and he promised him that he'd make him a great nation, and that Abraham and his descendants would inherit a great land, that meant they would have to drive certain peoples out of the land. And do you know the last peoples mentioned there in Genesis 15? It's the Jebusites. The Jebusites, the very ones we're reading about here. And when you read Joshua and Judges, you learn that Israel never fully drove them out. And so now here we are, hundreds of years later, and David is now finishing that work. Yahweh's promise to Abraham is coming to pass. 800 years of waiting Friends, 800 years of waiting does nothing to erode the reliability of God's word. I wonder if you see that even here now, my Christian friend. I wonder if you, even more to the point, can actually believe it and live that out. You know, so often in the Christian life when God doesn't deliver something sort of as we want, when we want, according to our clock, we can treat God's promises a bit like they have an expiration date. You know, the expiration date on milk cartons, right? It's, it, this is good until such and such a date. Well, with God's promises, we're like, okay, God, I'm willing to wait for a while. But if you don't come through on this thing by this time, then you know what? I'm just going to have to take things in my own hands. But notice here, there is no expiration date when it comes to God's promises. Every word of God proves true because God is faithful. You even see that in that editorial comment, verse 10, how David became greater and greater just as God had promised. Why? Because God is faithful. We see it in all the, the tributes and the lavish gifts that the king of Tyre, right, sends to David. It's a picture there of how the Gentile nations, just as God had promised, would flock to Israel's king because God is faithful to his word. And yet I think we have to recognize when we come to verse 13, we do hit a discordant note. Look down there to chapter 5, verse 13. For there we read, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammuah, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ebhar, Elisha, Nepheg, Japhtia, Elishama, Eliada, and Elipheleth. Yeah, okay. Names. Names that are tricky to pronounce, but that's actually not the point. Because I think one of the things we're seeing here is that David's house is expanding. And yet I think, friends, in another way, we're seeing right there how the narrator is actually frowning on David's activities and David's actions. And why do I say that? And I mean by the actions of taking concubines and many wives. And it's the way in which the narrator paints what's happened. Notice how he describes it. It's that expression, David took more concubines and wives. Now, some of you may remember years ago, all the way back in 1 Samuel 8, what did Israel do? They demanded a king like the nations. And what did God warn them would happen if they demanded a king like the nations? Well, their king would what? He would take. That is the constant refrain in 1 Samuel 8. He'll take land. He'll take grain. He'll take servants. He'll take flocks. He'll take sons for the military. And yes, even he'll take what? He'll take daughters. Which is exactly what King David is doing here right now. And in that, I think we're seeing a subtle way in which David is a king also just like the nations. Because in Deuteronomy 17, 17, God forbids Israel's kings take many wives like all the kings of the nations around them did. Right? David, we're seeing, yeah, he may be God's man, but he's a flawed man. Right? The best of men, as we say, are still what? Men at best. And I think this is even preparing us. It's giving us a little, a little hint and a window into what's about to happen in, first, in 2 Samuel 11. Because what will be David's undoing in 2 Samuel 11? Well, he's going to see Bathsheba bathing. And we read 2 Samuel 11:4. 4. 
that David sent messengers and took her. Same language. It would be the taking of Bathsheba that would, in fact, be David's undoing. And we all see it starting, right? It's all starting all the way back here. Friends, I think that ought to serve as a warning to us. Friends, sin rarely happens just suddenly, like just out of the blue, right? All of a sudden, I've, did this, I've done this heinous thing. No, there's, in fact, usually a long series of small decisions that lead to that inevitable consequence. Long chats, you know, at the water cooler lead to then private slacks at work, which leads then to lingering after work, and then maybe on a Friday some drinks after work, and then there's an offer of a drive home and an offer to perhaps come in for a minute, and you know how the story goes. A lot of small decisions leading to that inevitable fateful decision. And we're already seeing that in David. Friend, if you are on that train right now and you know exactly what I mean and you're in the midst of those small decisions and you think it's not going to go anywhere, get off that train, right? At the next stop or just jump. It never ends well. And it will end awfully for David. And yet the remarkable thing that we see in David's life is that God inexplicably continues to be faithful to David. He is faithful to David even when David is not. Oh, friend, do you see how kind, in fact, that is of God? How long-suffering it is of God? We might want God to do something about this right now. But, you know, it's very easy to see the speck in David's eye and ignore the log on our own, isn't it? For has God not been faithful to us Time and time again, even when we have been unfaithful to him. But friends, God isn't only faithful. Second, we see God is powerful. Second, God is powerful. Because in chapter 5, verse 17, the camera really pans now over to the war room in Philistia. And recognizing the threat that David is now becoming, the Philistines, what do they do? They immediately march out for war. So picking up chapter 5, verse 19. As they march out for war, we read, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to the rear, and come up against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did, as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. All right, so notice, what has David done? Right, Just like he did back in 2-1, the first, the first threat to his rule there with the Philistines, he inquires of the Lord. Right, He knows the horse must be ready and prepared for the day of battle, but what? What does the proverb tell us? The victory belongs to the Lord. Which is why after the Philistines are defeated, David rightly gives credit where credit is due. He said, the Lord has what? Broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. So just as a tsunami levels everything in its path, right? So the Lord has leveled the Philistines before David. And yet, though the Philistines took a looking, they come back. And this time, David again inquires of the Lord. Only after he inquires of the Lord, the Lord actually says, no, a flanking maneuver. That's what we're going to do this time. All right, verse 24. And when you hear the sound of the marching and the tops of the trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So to be clear, who's going out before David? Who is striking down the Philistines? Who's giving them into David's hand? 
The Lord is doing all of that. He is the actor in these events. Now, interestingly, some think Tolkien uh, actually used verse 24 as a kind of inspiration for the end of the two towers. So if some of you know sort of the trilogy there, the Lord of the Rings, end of the two towers, there's the great battle at Helm's Deep, and it looks like the good guys are getting beat, and then all of a sudden, sort of on the third day, Gandalf shows up, and they sort of rout the Urukai, and then if you remember at the end of the scene, some of the Urukai and the orcs, they're fleeing into Thangorn Forest. And what happens there? There's the rustling of the trees. The trees shake violently, and we hear the orcs no more. It's a chilling scene, but it may bear some resemblance to what's happening here in 2 Samuel chapter 5. But notice again the picture of God breaking his enemies like a breaking flood. It is God who's marching out. It is God who's striking down his enemies. Friends, the God of the Bible, I hope you are seeing, he's no sentimental, crusty, namby-pamby kind of deity. It's not who he is. He's a warrior. He's powerful, fearsome. What do we read, Psalm 24, 8? He is mighty in battle. I wonder if that comports with your own image of God. Is that how you think of God? Mighty in battle like this. You know, I remember when our kids were growing up, when they were young, we used to sing this song together, and it was with hand motions, right? It was, our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do for you, right? That's as much as you're ever going to hear me sing, right? But we used to sing that song with our kids. And we sing the kid song, but friends, the question is, do we actually believe the song? Do we believe it? My Christian friend, maybe you need to be reminded this morning that nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too strong for him. There is nothing you face in your life and God's like, oh man, that's tough. I, I don't know if I can pull you out of that one. Not at all. He's a warrior. He fights for his people. He guards and protects and keeps them to the very end. And that's what we're seeing. Which brings us to chapter 6. And the famous story of Uzzah and the ark. And here we see, thirdly, that God is not only faithful, he's not only powerful, but thirdly, notice we're going to see God is lethal. God is lethal. Look at chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. David again gathered the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bala Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Right? It's thought that perhaps this was the sort of composition. This was the event that led to the composition perhaps of Psalm 150, right? That we sang, that we opened with and sang earlier. All that to say. So here we come to the ark, which was a four by two by two foot sort of rectangular box. It was intricately overlaid with gold. And inside the ark were what? That stone tablet of the, of the law that had been given to Moses at Sinai. And on top of the ark were two cherubim. There were these winged creatures, and they were also all in gold. And their wings pointed inward toward the center of the ark, all attention being drawn toward the mercy seat where God would meet with his people. So 1 Chronicles refers to it as the, the ark is the footstool of God's heavenly throne. So if you put the ark together, graphically, what the ark represented to Israel was it represented there is a God who rules, right? There's a throne image, who reveals himself, tablets, and who reconciles, mercy seat. That's what the ark represented, the God who rules, who reveals, and who reconciles. And yet, this is the first time we've been reading of the ark, basically since all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 7. 
Right? It seems throughout Saul's reign, he had little concern for the ark. It seemed like the ark was perhaps of little use to Saul. You know, to him, it was sort of like a toy. You know how a boy grows tired of a toy, right? Discards it. It almost seems like that's what Saul's done. He abandons it. And the ark has been on the border of these Philistine lands for some 20 plus years now. And yet for David, though, this ruling, this revealing, this reconciling God, that God was to be at the heart of Israel's worship. And now that the Philistines have been routed, it's safe to go there and to take the ark and to bring it back to Jerusalem. So what does David do? He calls 30,000 of his men, right? He calls basically his army. And he calls them to come march to the house of Abinadab And notice they're celebrating, right, with every kind of instrument. They're basically a 30,000-person, like, marching band, right? Every brass instrument you can think of. And it's a great celebratory procession. It's kind of a national Macy's Day parade, right? That's basically what we have. So you got people, just imagine the scene. They're waving flags. They're dancing. The streets are going to be, uh, they're going to be uh, rather lined with people, like five deep. You're going to have children jockeying with one another for whatever open space they might be able to find. The youngest ones propped on dad's shoulders, right? The taste of cotton candy still lingering in their mouth. Like, this is a celebration. And everyone's come because, of course, the ark's been gone for decades. Most of these people have never seen the ark. They've never beheld anything like this. And then we come to verse 6. There's this joyous affair, this raucous worship service. And then we come to chapter 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. All right, so right there, the, the record sort of scratches, right? The music stops. Somebody go call 911 because Uzzah's motionless on the ground. Friends, it doesn't matter what worship tradition you come from. You could come from a very exciting Assemblies of God tradition. It doesn't matter what tradition you come from. When somebody drops dead, the worship service is over. It's over for them. This parade has become a funeral procession. Why is Uzzah now bound for the morgue? I mean, did he not instinctively and involuntarily, just with cat-like reflexes, when he saw the ark start to tumble to the earth, reach out his hand and grab it and save it? It's exactly what he appears to have done. How is this not a holy act of heroism? Sincerely trying to protect the ark, right? He's, He's seeking to do God a favor. And Uzzah's killed for it. Friends, we struggle with this God. Take it at face value, we struggle with him. We don't have categories often for a God like this. Yet we love that he's faithful, amen. We love that he's powerful, yes. But lethal like this? The way Uzzah's killed, struck dead right there? We don't know what to do with a God like that. He doesn't fit neatly into our mold. Now, as an aside, I find passages like this are some of the clearest evidence for the supernatural origins and trustworthiness of the Bible. Because think about it. We would never have invented a God like this. We just wouldn't have done it. This Uzzah story cuts right against the grain of all of our natural preferences. This God is not very marketable. He's not cute. He's not cuddly. This is not the Bible story you pull out to like win friends and influence people. It's not the one you go to. It's not probably the reading in most churches on Sunday morning. Which is why anyone who says the God of the Bible is merely a projection of our own deepest longings It's merely sort of this God as a personal wish fulfillment. If you've ever heard that or if you've ever thought that, let me just politely say you've never read the Bible. It's not at all how God is presented. But friends, why is Uzzah killed? 
Is God simply this capricious, ill-tempered deity who, who loves to strike down his creatures? Kind of like the boy who grabs the magnifying glass when he's bored and just fries some ants. Like, is that how we're to think about God? No, notice he struck down verse 7. Why? Because of his error. Because of his error. But what crime has Uzzah possibly committed? Well, back in Numbers 4, God was at pains to make a few things clear when it came to the transport of the ark. There were some very clear rules. Basically, no looky, right? Don't look inside. No touchy. And no ox and buggy. Basically the rules, if you're going to summarize it. The ark and all of its furnishings were to be carried by sliding two poles, like through the rings at the corners. It was to be lifted up and carried by the people. And Numbers 4.15, God explicitly says that they must not touch the holy things, including the ark, lest they, what? Lest they die. That was the explicit command given that would have been drilled into every Kohathite, that was the tribe that carried it, into all of their heads. So notice right there, Uzzah has directly violated God's law. And here's the thing, his motives in that moment might have been pure. Uzzah may have thought this was a holy act of heroism, but it was in fact an act of direct rebellion. In God's eyes, Uzzah acted proudly. And in the famous words of theologian R.C. Sproul, the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumed his hands were less polluted than the dirt. That's what he assumed. And he assumed wrongly, tragically so. Now, it may strike us that this is a kind of instance where the punishment far outweighs the crime. But friend, at that moment, we just have to recognize that that assumption just reflects what little concern we have for our sinfulness and what little regard we have for God's holiness. For in every sin, friends, even in the slightest of sins, we're saying that our will lies supreme. That our rights matter more than God's. And that is treason of a cosmic nature. And friends, we're seeing that when sinners come into direct contact with a holy God, they die every time. Not because God is unjust. Not because he's unfair. But because he is just. Innocent people never die in the Bible. So sometimes you hear that expression, why do bad things happen to good people? And perhaps you've wondered that. You know, why do the innocent suffer? But recognize, according to the Bible, that only has happened once, and that man volunteered. That was Jesus. He is the only innocent, truly innocent one to have ever suffered. Sin requires death. There's no escaping that. There's no way around it. It's what's pictured here right with Uzzah. And friends, it's pictured right for us all the way back in the garden. And while the blood of bulls and goats provided a kind of temporary stay, it provided them a kind of temporary stay in the Old Testament, it didn't solve the fundamental problem. Every one of us were still on death row marching toward that inevitable execution. No, what did we need? We needed Jesus, right? We needed the perfect man to come, the man without sin, the only truly innocent person ever to live. And he needed to take our place on death row. And on the cross, that's exactly what he did. He stood there as a substitute for sinners. Innocent men, or I guess you say the only innocent man would suffer So that the masses of the guilty in him might go free. And they might live. So you see, in in Christ, forgiveness is offered to all if they would confess their sins and repent and put their trust in Christ. The one who then, what, rose triumphantly from the grave and he conquered death and sin. And he promises that all those who are in him and who trust in him can one day live and reign with him. 
That's the hope of the gospel. That's what we hold out to you if you've come and you wouldn't identify as a Christian. Recognize you will either reject God and pay the price yourself, or you will accept him by accepting Christ's sacrifice for you. The question you need to ask yourself is, which will it be? One clearly leads to death, the other to everlasting life. You see, God is not just some fickle, some temperamental deity. He had warned them. Just, we notice, you read right over it, but the, the ark is being transported on a cart, a new cart. Friends, that's just like the Philistines transported it back in 1 Samuel 6. Israel's worship is out of alignment. No, God is not a cute, cuddly, he's not one of those harmless, chubby little figures, right? I know some of us love those precious moments dolls, but, you know, in, in, my, in their worst forms, I should say, things like that, they give the comfort of the divine without any of the demands. It's our way of what? Domesticating God. It's our way of shrinking God down to size, making him more comfortable to us, more palatable to us. But we are seeing God is lethal in his holiness. God will not be domesticated. It reminds me of that uh, famous scene with Lucy and Edmund, if you know, in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They're talking about Aslan and asking some questions about Aslan to Mrs. Beaver. And Mrs. Beaver says, well, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And so with that, Lucy says, you mean Aslan isn't safe, she says. And Mrs. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He is good, but he's not safe. And friend, it's not just here that we see this. Think about Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, who for their unauthorized fire, what happens? They're consumed by fire. Or think, it's not just the Old Testament. Like we've got an Old Testament God of, of wrath, and right, he's really, really mad at us, and then we get the New Testament, and he's really, really happy with us or something. No, you go to Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They are struck dead right there for their sin. Or you think of the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11 who presume to take the Lord's Supper and those who do, what? They die as a result, we read. God is not that mean, that neat, sort of warm and fuzzy friend. He's not sort of our Father Christmas in the sky. He's not like that indulgent grandparent. He is lethal outside of Christ. And he, notice, prescribes exactly how he's to be worshipped. So let this story of Uzzah be a warning. Let it be a warning to any notion that we might have that says, you know what, I really like to think of God like this. Or let it be a warning against any notion that says, you know, I really like to think about worship of God like this. Or, you know, it doesn't really matter how you worship God or which God you worship, so long as that worship is sincere. Friends, worship that is merely sincere will leave you sincerely dead. Exactly what happened to Uzzah. We can think whatever we want about God, but that doesn't for a minute change who he actually is. There's a reason we are commanded in Hebrews 12, 28, to offer acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God is powerful. He's, he's faithful. He's powerful. He's lethal. And lastly and fourthly, God is venerable. He's venerable. Now, last night, my wife asked me, like, hey, what's your outline? And I walked through it, and I got to this one, and she's like, venerable what, seriously? I said, well, hey, it's better. It was inimitable. And she's like, I give up on you. Okay, so when I say venerable, I mean he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of all of our respect. Or after the incident with Uzzah, David's angry and then he's afraid, and we're, we read that he then sends the ark away to Obed-Edom. And during that time when the ark is away, his family's actually blessed. And so David, observing this, reconsiders, and he's like, you know what, let's try to bring the ark back to Jerusalem again. 
He knows this God is worthy of his worship. And he knows that their prosperity as a people is going to be directly tied to God's presence with them. Only this time, the second round, we get the sense that David in the interim has been doing some reading. He's been studying up. Because notice this time we read chapter 6, verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now wait, just right there. Those who what? Those who, those who bore the ark? Taking six steps? Do you see what's happened? It's no longer being pulled on a cart by oxen. They're carrying it just like Numbers 4 had commanded. David, it seems, had gone back to the word to rightly understand how to worship the Lord of the word. That's what he's done. And we read in 514 that David danced, right, with all of his might. And this was accompanied by great shouting and all the music. And yet we learn that there is one watching all of this from a window far above all the fray. We read in chapter 6, verse 16, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So when David returns home to bless his family, in verse 20, we read there that Michal, the daughter of Saul, what? She comes out to meet David. And so David is coming home, exuberant, excited from all the glorious things that have been taking place. And yet he's got his wife, one of them, waiting for him. And she's waiting for him with long lashes that hang disdainfully over eyes that look upon him with contempt. And she says, how the king of Israel honored himself today, right? That's dripping with sarcasm uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And that's what she says in verse 20. Now, we don't know exactly how David danced. Some of you asked this week if I might seek to provide an illustration. No joke, a couple of you did that. You should know me by now to know that I'll only do that with my wife. No, I'm kidding. Um... And I, I, I'm going to spare you, but John Henderson has offered to provide a demonstration out there at the fountain in a linen ephod, right? So you can enjoy that. I think it's safe to say, friends, this wasn't a controlled waltz. It wasn't like that. Whatever this dance was, his legs were flying, and it seems that she assumed David was doing this for the benefit of the young women who were watching to gain their attention Whereas David says in verse 21, and he says this twice, it's how he opens in verse 21 and how he closes, he says, you got it all wrong. This was before the Lord. This was before him. David's saying, I worship an audience of one. That's who I worship. But it seems she had no category for this. Had no category that such exuberance by David would be an appropriate response to God's grace. She seemed to value her dignity more than God's mercy. She seemed to value her reputation more than celebrating the joy of God's salvation. Notice every time she's mentioned in this passage, she's mentioned as Michal, the daughter of Saul. That's not accidental. Right? The narrator is helping us see the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree, right? She's a chip off the old block, just like Saul. And for her sin, down in 623, we're going to read that she's basically cursed and barren until her death. The house of Saul now literally dying within her womb. But I wonder, UBC, I wonder if we ever see ourselves in Michal. For notice right here that a holy and reverential fear of the Lord is not inconsistent with a joy and celebration of the Lord. Now dare I say as a church, we understand the holy reverence and fear part, but 
we might risk missing some of the second, some of the joy, some of the exuberance. I mean, how often, like Michal, do we watch others sing and worship? She's up in the window watching. How many of us are sitting there in our pews or standing and watching others sing and watching them worship? All the while, we're offering quiet, sort of silent judgments. Notice right here, we're seeing in her, so to speak, that uh, you know, her, her, her mouth, like us perhaps, her mouth was closed. It doesn't seem she was doing much celebrating up there. And just like her, our eyes at such times sometimes can drift. And they what? They drift off God and they just are consumed with the people around us. Or how often are our faces severe, right? Our bodies are stiff as if we're singing through pursed lips. Friends, what does it say? You know, UBC, what does it say? about us, if we can gather on Saturday in a football stadium or even on our couch and shout with enthusiastic joy, but on Sunday we can't fathom anything but a kind of professional detachment. That can't say anything good about us. Yes, there are times in our singing to be calm, to be sober, right? The Psalms, they cover the whole depth and range of human experience and emotion. There are minor keys, but there is also the major key. There is the joy, the celebration. Can it be right that we come and give all of our coldness to Christ, and yet the world gets all of our enthusiasm? What does that say about what we really worship? But notice what happens as we come to a close at the center of the chapter, chapter 6. Look down to chapter 6, verse 18. As David has brought the ark in, we read, And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed, distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all of the people departed, each to his own house. So notice how the narrator right there is at pains to make clear that all who were truly part of Israel were meant to partake of this meal with the king, men and women alike. Friends, it's a picture of what we're about to celebrate here in just a moment, isn't it? A sacrifice commemorated in the form of a corporate meal that celebrates God's presence with us. So I wonder, my friend, how have these chapters challenged whatever assumptions, presumptions maybe you have about God? Because we all make certain assumptions about him. But unlike a new restaurant or unlike a movie, when we get God wrong like Uzzah did, the results are tragic. God is faithful. God is powerful. God is also lethal, and he is venerable, as in he is worthy of our worship. Friend, is this the God you worship this morning? Let's pray.